Church, let's sing this morning. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. We sing the gospel, He took my sins. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them His very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. these words in Colossians chapter 3 and he says so as those who have been chosen of God holy and beloved put on a heart of compassion kindness humility gentleness and patience bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone just as the Lord forgave you so also should you beyond all these things put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom and teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This morning is the most unusual Sunday probably any of us have ever been a part of. And so if you want to stand and hum or, or sing softly or just remain seated, that is entirely up to you. But as the body of Christ, let's worship. God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. 
earth and heavenly saints. Let earth and Praise God together. Father, the psalmist commands the people of God who have experienced the steadfast love and faithfulness of the living God to praise you. Praise befits the righteous. Praise signals that even though we look into a sin-cursed world and things are still broken, we have a future. We have a living hope. Indeed, the psalmist says, Praise the Lord, for you are good. Indeed, the Lord is great, the psalmist says. And Lord, because of progressive revelation, 
because of the coming of the Son of God, the Messiah, who was prophesied from Genesis 3.15 on, we know greater than the psalmist of your goodness and your greatness. We even have greater reason to praise you. For we know even more clearly than the Old Testament saints that you are indeed triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You didn't become triune of the incarnation. You are eternally triune. But because of the, tri the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we, we have come to recognize that you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know you, Father, in your Son, Jesus, and by your Spirit. And that's why Paul commands us to praise the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you have blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Indeed, the triunity of God is seen in that one verse. We praise you, Father, because of the Son who came as our substitute. The Lord of the covenant, the servant of the covenant. To obey the terms of the covenant. And then to take the sanctions Receive the sanctions for having broken the covenant for us as the perfect Lamb of God. Satisfying your righteous requirements on sin at the cross, being raised from the grave for our justification, and then sending His Spirit to regenerate us to convert us, indeed to seal us and to fill us. Lord, one of the great evidences that we are filled is that we praise the living God. May your spirit fill us today. There are many potential distractions. Those distractions would eclipse your glory today. So we pray that your spirit would Take away those distractions, and may we center on the true and living God today. And we ask these things in the name of our Christ. Amen. Son of God and man, you are high. 
Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Better is one day in your courts. Better is Father, we come to you this morning, and what we've just sung and heard uh, from Psalm 84 is indeed the cry of all your people, those who, since we've had to be so isolated. It is better to spend one day at the threshold of the house of my God than a thousand days in the tents of the wicked. And so, Lord, we delight as your people to gather together to hear your word, to sing your word, to listen, to see one another, to be in one another's presence, even though we are still refrained from, from hugging and touching like we would love to. But Father, right now, um, as your word is preached, do what only you can do. Fill Brian with your spirit. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are hungry so that we could say with the psalmist, better is one day in your courts and in your house than thousands elsewhere. Do now what only you can do as we reach the zenith and the apex of Christian worship, which is when your word is preached. Give us ears to hear. Convict us where we are in need of confession by your spirit through your word being preached. Sanctify your people today and bring the lost to Christ. We bless you and we praise your name this morning. Amen. You be seated. Well, as I was saying before, we were rudely interrupted. Turn in your Bible to Psalm 84. Psalm 84, it is a delight to be here with you. You are family. And we love you. We've missed you. And remember, God is just as sovereign in these last nine weeks as he's ever been. And he's working out all things together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Nothing happens outside of his providence. And when we get all, we lose sleep and get all frustrated, it's the sign that we've lost sight of where our hope is. And we are back together, and I can't tell you what a blessing this is for us, for me. And... 
You are a means of grace to me. And I thank you and I love you for that. Well, let's pray and let's get into our text this morning. Father of mercy, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Maybe it took a pandemic to really know that and believe that experientially. We've known it our entire lives intellectually. It took a pandemic to really come to terms with that experientially. For that, we thank you. We pray now as we come into this text that really centers on that reality. That your spirit would do his work of driving that truth home even deeper. I pray that those who are struggling right now with frustrations and fears and anxieties, discouragement, despair, depression, I pray that your word could be used by your spirit to drive those things out of us and replace them with faith, hope, and love. We ask these in Things in Jesus' name, amen. It'll be next month. 20 years ago, Heather and I went to the Ligonier Conference in Orlando, and one of the central reasons I went, I wanted to hear James Montgomery Boyce, pastor in Philadelphia. And I'll never forget that night. We sat down waiting to hear James Montgomery Boyce. I'd heard him preach many times on, on cassette, radio, Narcisse Sproul stood up that night and tears were flowing. And he said, my brother James Montgomery Boyce has died. I believe it was June 15th, 2000. And I remember just tearing up and, and just emotions coming over me as I heard that. Narcisse Sproul had to preach a, an emergency sermon. I'm grateful to have heard that sermon, but... I hated it came at the expense of James Montgomery Boyce's life. But James Montgomery Boyce recounted a story I used to hear of his predecessor at his church, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who used to tell that when he was in seminary, there was a, an evening that he was in a, a Bible study. And the Bible study leader asked all the people in the group to share one verse that had deeply impacted them. Well, there was one clown in the group. Uh, didn't take anything seriously. Wasn't serious about the things of God. What he was doing in the group, no one knew. But he spurted out, 1 Chronicles 26, verse 18. And then he began to quote it from memory in the King James Version. At Parbar... Westward, four at the causeway, and two at Parbar. Of course, this verse puzzled everyone. The skeptic then said, if you believe your Bible is inspired, then tell me why that text was inspired for you. No, really one knew the answer. And years went by, and Barnhouse often thought about that evening. And then one day he was studying his Bible, and he came to 1 Chronicles 
26, 18, and he decided to finally study that verse contextually. And he learned that it was the record of the assigning of the sons of Levi to various places of service in the temple. Of course, Aaron was of this tribe, and his sons were divided in chapter 24 of 1 Chronicles into 24 groups to maintain the sacrifices at the temple. So you had some from the, the sons of Levi who would, who would watch over and maintain the sacrifices, 24 groups. That was chapter 24. And then in chapter 25, the, the descendants of Aaron's cousin Asaph, they were given the responsibility to lead worship at the temple. The next chapter from which this obscure verse came was cited to give us a record of the assignments given to a third branch of Levi's tribe, the sons of Korah. And these sons were to be the gatekeepers, to be the doorkeepers, the custodians, if you will, of the temple. It was not a prestigious responsibility, but it was a necessary one. And, and the word of God esteemed these men. In that very chapter, 1 Chronicles 26, they were men of great ability. Verse 6, verse 8, they were men qualified for service. And then the, the chapter goes on to record where each one should serve, where each one should stand in the temple. Verse 17, some were stationed to the north, others to the east, south, and west. And it's at this point that verse concerning Parbar and the causeway occurs. In the ESV, we'll just make it clearer here. In the ESV, it reads, And for the colonnade, that was the translation, ESV, for parbar, which is the Hebrew word, at the colonnade on the west, there were four on the road, two at the colonnade. These were the divisions of the gatekeepers. Well, years later, Barnhouse wrote this. Many times I thank God for the cynical twist in the mind of that fellow who tossed a seemingly nonsensical verse into the midst of a prayer meeting. He meant it for confusion, but the Lord meant it for good. For I learned later as I probed into the depths of the Word of God that God is interested in the simplest task of the simplest men. So their job may not have been glamorous in any way, but they saw it as an honor so that corporate worship could take place. Now, what does this have to do with our text? It's a strange introduction for Psalm 84. Well, notice in the superscription. Last week when we looked at Psalm 51, we talked about how the superscription is a part of the text. It was inspired of God. And notice in the superscription of Psalm 84. To the choir master... According to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Isn't that beautiful? For us to pull off what we are doing today and for the immediate future, 
in a way that, and this has been a theme verse for us, honors everyone, fears God, loves the brotherhood, and honors the emperor. And yes, that command is still binding unless we become uh, theological liberals. It's still binding. In order for us to do that, we need to take our cue from the sons of Korah and be willing, and we've already seen that. We've got people cleaning the bathrooms this morning, people working the pavement in the parking lot. And by the way, isn't the parking lot beautiful? Yeah. We have to have our people be willing to do the most mundane of tasks out of love for our God and out of our esteem of corporate worship. Now, there are selahs at the end of verse 4 and verse 8. Most scholars believe that selah means to pause and to reflect and meditate. All right? So there is a selah after verse 4. There is a selah at the end of verse 8. And so this text gives us its outline. Verses 1 to 4 is the first stanza. It ends with a selah. Verses 5 to 8 is the second stanza. It ends with a selah. And then verses 9 to 12 is the third stanza. So there's three stanzas, four verses each. And what's also beautiful about this passage is that there is a beatitude in each stanza, a promise of blessing. So verses 1 to 4, we have a promise of blessing. Verses 5 to 8, we have a promise of blessing. In verses 9 to 12, we have a promise of blessing. And the first blessing we see in this first stanza, verses 1 to 4. Now notice in 1, two, one and 2, verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Isn't that beautiful? It wouldn't have been as beautiful to us nine weeks ago because we wouldn't have had eyes to see, but we have now eyes to see. And in that sense, these nine weeks have been good for us. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now, language seems to fail the psalmist here as he seeks to describe the loveliness of God's dwelling place. And all he can seem to say is, my soul longs, yes, faints. There's another famous psalm of, of, of Korah in chapter 42 that you know well. And it's similar to how this one begins. In Psalm 42, 1, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now keep in mind, the sons of Korah were always at the temple. They were the ones who opened it up. They were the ones who closed it down at night. And so they had a unique vantage point on glory. 
They beheld, they saw glory all the time. And that's why they're longing. You have to behold glory in order to long. And it's clear that it's not simply the sons of Korah waxing eloquent on the, the building itself. Like I do when I will often walk into the old worship center. I do it virtually every Friday. And I pray for our service. And I think also on the years and years that my family and my church family has been in that room worshiping through the preaching of the word, the singing of the word. And I get really sentimental. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what the psalmist is doing here. The living God is the true object of his longing. Now, many in the pandemic, and I would even include myself here, have been fainting for all sorts of things. Now, that's the word here. My soul faints. We've seen people, and we would include ourselves in this, fainting for a vaccine, longing for a vaccine. Longing for job security, for the stock market to rebound. Those are good things. For health and health of our families, for sports to return, amen? For the government to back off, right? And even some sinister things we see people fainting for. For the bars to reopen, because they don't know how to cope. They have no Christian worldview. We've seen the rise of internet pornography. People who do not know how to cope because they don't know the true and living God. We've seen all kinds of longing. But the inspired psalmist here models for us what a healthy believer longs for most ultimately. We see it here in this text. And, and it's not that the psalmist can't worship on his own. They did worship on their own. But he recognizes that his adoration increases and his own joy doubles when we, the people of God, worship together. And so here, the, the psalmist's heart and his flesh sing for joy. But here's the question, how did he get here? I can't just command you, you need to long for God. Well, I can do that, but it's not going to change anything. It would be like telling a, a young man who wants to play in the NBA, you need to have a 40-inch vertical. That doesn't change anything. He can no more change his 40-inch vertical, then a person can work himself up in a lather to long for God. That's not how it works. But the psalmist gives us how to get there. And here's what he does. And you're going to see this throughout this chapter. He meditates on God. In fact, we see about 10 truths about God in this passage that clearly have stirred him to long for him. 
Remember, he's staring at glory all the time. If you're not staring at glory, you're not going to long for God. You're going you're to go horizontal. You're going to, be in, you're going to begin to long for God replacements. That's the great problem of humanity. And the first thing we see here that he is meditating on, this God is the Lord of hosts. Notice in verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of armies. This was the name of God that David encountered Goliath with. I come in the name of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, which points to us he is our security. And when we reflect on that, what does it do? It chastens all sinister fears. We have no reason to fear. Because our God is the Lord of hosts. The second reality about God here in this verse 2 is God is the Lord. Notice, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. That's Yahweh. That's the covenant name. What does that mean? Well, if you go all the way back to Exodus 3. We see three realities about this, this Lord when he reveals this name to Moses. First, he's sovereign. He's sovereign. Second, he has all authority. And third, he is covenantally present with his people. And we know that supremely through the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And not only that, this Lord condescends to sinners and enters into covenant with them. So how can he enter into a covenant with a sinner? He absorbs the debt. And we know that supremely in the Son of God who absorbed our debt, who received the wages of sin on the cross. So he condescends to us. And what does that mean to us? It means he's invested in us. He's all in. I have no reason to fret. He is all in. This Lord who's sovereign, who has all authority, and who is covenantally present with his people is all in. If God is for us, who can be against us? Third, he's the living God. Don't you love that? Verse 2. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Nothing can kill him. Corrupt government can't kill him. He is the living God. He's ever-present. Nothing can thwart his purposes. He's the only non-contingent being. And we know supremely that he's the living God because our Messiah was raised from the grave forevermore. Nothing can put Jesus back in the tomb. Nothing can dethrone him from the right hand of the Father. The psalmist is reflecting on these realities about God. And it creates longings for him. Verse 3, we see the fourth and fifth realities about this God. Notice with me in verse 3. He says, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself. I was meditating on this. This past week, and I was reminded of a quote from Luther. He says, the birds 
are the best theologians in Scripture. Even the swallow, a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. The fourth reality we see here is he is my king. And the fifth reality, he is my God. Notice the personal reality here. He's my king. He is my God. As my king, he has subdued me to himself, which is a miracle. And he rules over me. All right? And he restrains and conquers all of his and my enemies. Again, no government can thwart that king. You can be all up in arms about government. This is the king. And that's why when you see, study the scriptures, you never see the, the writers critiquing the government. They're saying, be God's people and let God take care of that. Read Psalm 2 sometime. He who sits in the heavens laughs at governments who are trying to take the place of God. Of course, we can't say my king and we can't say my God without redemption. Why would, why would I say that? Well, because God judges sin and God judges sinners. Herman Bovink in his volume three of his wonderful four-volume dogmatics says this. He says, if God did not punish sin... He would give to evil the same rights he accords to the good and so deny himself. The punishment of sin is necessary so that God may remain God. And that's where the altar in verse 3 comes in. He notices that the birds find a home. And lay their nest at the altars. Under the old covenant, the altar was where the animals, the substitutes, were sacrificed for atonement. Through the substitute, the old covenant believer could say, you are my king. You are my God. It was only through the substitute. And even the birds preach this. Now, look at these two birds. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest. In the Bible, the sparrows symbolized something that was almost worthless. Later, Jesus would say in Matthew 10, 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? For a penny. And yet, the sparrows find a home at the altar in the temple. And Jesus goes on to say, And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And look, there are government officials who do not esteem Christ's church. We know that. 
Some government officials do. Not speaking universally. But there are many government officials who do not esteem Christians and do not esteem Christ's church. We are sparrows in their eyes. All right? But instead of getting in an uproar and losing sleep, remember the government that Jesus and the believers then were under when he said these words. Tiberius was the emperor at that time. Here's what Tacitus, the Roman historian, said of Tiberius. He was infamous for his cruelty. He plunged into every wickedness and disgrace. That's the government, as Jesus says these words. And Jesus said, verse 31 of chapter 10, Fear not, you are more valuable than the sparrows. Why do you think the people of God were fearing? Oppressive regimes. You're more valuable than the sparrows. How about the swallows here? If the sparrows symbolize insignificance, the swallows symbolize restlessness. Now, where do I get that from? Well, for, among other places, Proverbs 26.2, Like a flying sparrow, a curse without cause shall not alight. It just flies from dust to dawn. They were always in the air flying sparrows until the time came for them to mate and to have baby sparrows. And then they would build their nest and be at peace. The, the, the swallow is a picture of the restless soul apart from the true worship of the living God. But at the altar, the psalmist is saying, at the altar, it builds its nest. It finds rest. Again, the word altar in the Old Testament literally means the place of slaughter. Isn't the irony amazing there? And note that the swallows have the sense. This would be a great Mother's Day text. And a Father's Day text. They had the sense to lay their babes at the altar as well. Isn't that interesting? I think this well represents parents who don't just bring their children to church. They immerse their children. They lay a nest. And why? Because they know. That true blessing comes with corporate life. True blessing comes with corporate life. True blessing comes with corporate worship. Notice in verse 4. Blessed, and here's the first beatitude, the first promise of blessing to close out the first stanza. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. We know this better than we've ever known it. And that's a blessing. Ever singing your praise. You don't know what you got till it's gone. Think about writing a song. 
This is the first of the three Beatitudes. And this is promised to those who, whose hearts were once restless, but now they found their rest in God. And corporate worship is a public declaration of rest. That's what corporate worship is. Corporate worship is the people of God declaring Jesus was right, Jesus was true when he said, Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what corporate worship communicates. And David would agree. Listen to these words from Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And then verse 4 ends with what? Selah. Think and meditate on these things. Now, having said that, just being present is not sufficient. There are a lot of people, and I've known them my whole life, who go to church because it's the cultural thing to do. It's become a part of their DNA. But... They're not longing. There's no longing. As a result, they're, in a sense, they're wasting their time. And that brings us to the second beatitude, the second stanza. The blessing of having the Lord as our strength. Notice in verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. The blessed worshiper is the one who is so weak and so dependent, his or her strength is in God himself. I think it was Alistair Begg who said, if dependency is the goal, then weakness is a benefit. As a result, notice, his heart is the highway to Zion. That is, his heart, which is the causal core of our being, always wants to be in corporate worship. His heart is the highway to Zion. Isn't that beautiful language? His heart is the... Could that be said about you? When you die at your funeral, could that be said? His heart was the highway's design. Could that be said about you by your spouse or your sons and by your daughters, by your neighbors? Her heart was the highway design because this person needs it. It's this person's ultimate aspiration. And that's why I'm so encouraged by the holy restlessness I've seen here at Fisherville. A holy restlessness for corporate worship the last nine weeks. That's a good thing. You were like the swallow. Someone took their nest away. And that's good. But contextually, this is very likely referring 
to a, a journey that was commanded of the men in Israel three times a year. Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. Of course, we recognize that by the time you get to the Psalms, it's Jerusalem. David established the capital in Jerusalem. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booze. I think that's why he's talking about here the highways and going through the valleys of Baca. Baca is a Hebrew word that means the balsam trees. All right? The resin of the tree oozed out like tears. And in fact, that word, baka, sounds in Hebrew like weeping, the word for weeping. It's the valley of weeping, the valley of suffering. It, it was a tough journey for most people, making their way three times a year to Jerusalem. Most people didn't even live in the vicinity of Jerusalem. And it could be dangerous and it could be difficult. And the psalmist describes going through the valley of Baca on the way to worship. But for the one whose strength is in the Lord, the dry places become a place of springs, is what he says. Some of you have come to realize that these last nine weeks. There's only two responses over the last nine weeks. It either makes you harder and more cynical and angry or you've experienced the dry place becoming a place of springs. And that's the evidence that your strength is in the Lord and not something else. That's what the psalmist is saying. He's speaking figuratively, I think, as well. He, he, he's speaking of the hardships on the way to Zion. And there's an ultimate Zion, right? The new heavens and the new earth. But by God's strength and hearts set on Zion, even the valley of Baca becomes covered with pools. You see God resourcing. One of the favorite lines that I see in the Old Testament is when he caused the water to gush forth from the rocks. I call those rock water experiences. I think what he's referring to here, rock water experiences. He takes the dry places and he covers them with springs and pools because your strength is in him and you're seeing God show up. And that's a word for us. And we know all of these festivals and we know the temple itself were shadows that find their fulfillment in Jesus himself. As we pursue him, most especially centered on corporate worship in God's temple today, the church. And we are the temple because we're in union with the temple, the sanctuary of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Note what happens, verse 7. They go from strength to strength. In the valley of Baca, they get stronger and stronger. That's the evidence of a man or a woman who's finding his strength in the Lord. They go from strength to strength. It's a remarkable text. I've thought about this 
all week. Each one appears before God in Zion. Of course, our worship today is just a foretaste, right, of the worship in the new heavens and in the earth. Well, there won't be a temple, John says, because God and the Lamb will be there. Again, if dependency is the goal, weakness is an advantage. And the valley of Baca ends up becoming a place of strength. And it's not completely clear in verse 8 how it connects with verse 7. But one thing is clear. One evidence that our strength is in God is that we have vibrant prayer lives. If your prayer life is weak to non-existent, you're too strong. You're too strong. The evidence that your strength is in God is that you have a fervent prayer life. And we see this in verse 8 as he begins to just break out in prayer. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Again, note the Lord of hosts, the God of armies. He is appealing to the God of armies in his prayer. Here's the question. If you really know you're weak and you really believe you have access to the God of armies, what's that going to do for your prayer life? And the psalmist closes out this section again with this sailor. Think and meditate on this. And as he approaches the third and final stanza, he continues in prayer. And again, this third stanza has a beatitude. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord. Notice in verse 9, he's continuing his prayer from verse 8. And I think this is very important for us. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. This is a sixth truth about God that the psalmist is meditating upon right here. He is a shield of protection. But notice, he protects through his anointed king. Now, why do I say that? He says, look on the face of your anointed. Who is the anointed one at this time? By the word, that word is Messiah. Look on the face of your Messiah. That was the king. It was the king. He, he recognizes that his and the people of God's welfare is dependent upon God looking on his anointed. Looking on the face of his anointed. And he just breaks out in prayer as he recognizes that the promises and privileges promised in this psalm is dependent on the welfare of the anointed one. And under the old covenant, that wasn't always good news. Because these kings would go rogue in a heartbeat. Kings would apostatize in a heartbeat. And as the king goes, so goes the people. And so if the king goes rogue, guess what's going to happen? The temple ultimately is going to be destroyed. And it did. It was destroyed. So this wasn't necessarily great news in that day. It's the best news in our day. Because we have anointed one. God has looked upon his face. God has secured 
victory in this anointed one through his resurrection and his ascension to his right hand. It's a beautiful prayer. But now we don't even have to pray it except to thank him that this anointed one has been secured through his cross, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And that's where our hope is. That's where our security is. And that's why the language of shield is here. Now notice in verse 10, in light of that, he says, notice the connector, for a day. So look on the face of your anointed because his well-being is dependent. Our well-being is dependent on his well-being. And our corporate worship is dependent on his well-being. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. So the sons of Korah seem to be having some kind of comparative research. They're doing comparative research on the best and happiest and most pleasurable things that this world has to offer. And he says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Indeed, notice the second part of verse 10. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. Now, who were the sons of Korah? They were the doorkeepers. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. We've seen how much these doorkeepers mattered to the Lord, even though it was very mundane and, and busy work. It was their job to open the temple and to close the temple. It was their job to receive the tithes and the offerings from the people. It was their job to guard the temple from unclean things and unclean people, ritually unclean things, people who were not ceremonially clean. And they stood guard from morning to dusk every day. And the psalmist says, I would rather be there. I would rather be there. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my Lord than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The standing guard at the entrance of the temple was a reminder that communion with God is not a right. It's a privilege. When God established the heavens and the earth... He put Adam and Eve in the garden. There was no sin and there was no need for a guard. And it wasn't until sin entered the world that God established guards, the cherubim, Genesis 3, 24. And it teaches us that for God to dwell with his people in the temple was a miracle of mercy. Only possible with the regulations that included ongoing sacrifices. But again, there's some ironic language here. I, I wish we could spend more time on it, but Korah was the grandfather of these men, right? The far-off grandfather. And Korah was the one who rebelled against Moses. He was the one that rebelled against Aaron in number 16. He believed that everybody should have equal access to the temple. He didn't believe in the priesthood. All of God's people are holy. We should all have complete access to the temple, but the earth opened and swallowed him alive. But Numbers 24 tells us the sons of Korah did not die. And there was a reason for that. God had a job for them. 
The irony is that, that Korah wanted to open up the tabernacle so that anyone could enter, clean or unclean. And God appoints his sons of all people to be the doorkeepers, to be the gatekeepers, to guard the entrance, to make sure that nothing unclean came in. In other words, they made it their life's work to prevent the sin of their father from ever occurring. So Korah said, anyone can enter. The son said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I believe that's what he's referring to. And verse 11 informs us why. Notice in verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. That's a seventh reality concerning God that provoke the psalmist longing. The Lord God is our light in darkness. He's a sun. It's the only place in Scripture God is called the sun. But it's important. Most of the Bible's 150 references to the sun refer to the sun as a source of light. And, and it's hard for us to appreciate that in America. We have electric lights. Now think about it. What if this pandemic had taken away our power? We would appreciate this more. But if you go to a, a developing country, and I've been to two countries where this happens. At 6 p.m., they turn off all the power grids. To save money. Ghana and in, in Haiti, 6 p.m., all the power goes out. Pitch dark. And you're there in a foreign country in pitch darkness. When that sun arises in the morning, you are celebrating. When we read that God is the sun, spiritually, this is one of the most hopeful metaphors in the Bible as we recognize the darkness of our fallen world. Notice as well, he's our protector. It says he's a shield. Shield was the main defensive weapon for an ancient Near Eastern soldier. You know, this pandemic, again, has benefited us and because it has taken away the illusion of self-sufficient safety. Doctors aren't enough. We love Dr. Jeff. Doctors aren't enough and medical science aren't enough. It's not enough. Military can't protect us. The police can't protect us. He's our shield. That's the eighth reality about this God. Ninth, he bestows favor and honor on his people. I love that. He bestows favor and honor. The Lord bestows Favor and honor. We know our favor and honor comes from the one who was the well-pleasing son. We know better than the psalmist. In the 10th, he gives all good things to his upright. No good thing does he withhold from the upright. That's one of our problems, that we, we believe God's going to hold out. And This text says he withholds no good things from those who walk uprightly. Who are those who walk uprightly? Those whose strength is in the Lord. Those who long for the courts of the Lord. And add all this up, and we learn why the sons of Korah long to be in God's presence. And that brings us to the 
final beatitude, verse 12. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is where true blessing is found. Maximum pleasure is found in this, trusting in the Lord. Lord, in light of who you are and the, and the benefits I've reflected upon, is what the psalmist is saying, anyone who trusts in you is blessed. Anyone who trusts in you to provide the good things. I love how Spurgeon Closes out his commentary on this chapter. Great fitting close for us today. He says, here is the key of the psalm. The worship is that of faith. And the blessedness is peculiar to believers. No formal worshiper can enter into this secret. In other words, someone who just comes because it's a part of their cultural duty. A man must know the Lord... By the life of real faith, or he can have no true rejoicing in the Lord's worship, his house, his son, or his ways. Dear reader, how fares it with thy soul? Isn't that a good way to close this out? Dear listener, how fares it with thy soul? Better is one day in his course than a thousand elsewhere. Because there are those health officials who are saying that singing can be a means of spreading this thing. We're not going to close out our services with song. But I do want us to close out with a time of concentrated prayer. And so I just want to have us bow our heads for a moment and And what a fitting thing to do, but to pray. The scripture describes the church as a house of prayer. So as we close out this morning, let's just reflect on this psalm that we have just considered. And then we'll be dismissed. Father, before we begin this short time of prayer... I just pray your spirit will work in all of our hearts today. There may be some sin that is unconfessed. And that sin is, is blinding us to your glory. The glory of what we see in this text. Lord, I pray you would show us any unconfessed sin that does not befit your glory. Lord, maybe it's the sin of the tongue where we've become very critical and negative in this time, frustrated by decisions that have been made. And maybe that those sins, Lord, have gotten in the way of our gospel witness. Show us, Lord, your, the sins that we've committed against you and against each other. 
Father, we also want to thank you for the grace and mercy that covers that sin. We deserve judgment for our sin. But we thank you that as the birds teach us, there is rest at the altar. And we recognize the ultimate expression of the Bible's altar is the cross. Jesus Christ took the wrath for our sin, for those who trust in him. Thank you for forgiveness. And thank you that he not only took the wrath, he didn't stay in the tomb. He was raised from the grave, poured out his spirit on us that we might live holy lives. Give us grace to be holy, Lord. Give us grace to find our strength in you this morning. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. That's what the psalmist tells us, Lord. And Lord, if we're not finding our strength in you, bring us to the place of weakness that we do. We confess you are our son. You are our shield. We confess you bestow favor and honor on your people. No good thing do you withhold. We don't need to supplement what you have provided. No good thing do you withhold. So if we don't have something, it's because it's not good for us. We thank you that we have this promise. We thank you that we have the promise of blessing for those who dwell in your house, singing your praise. The promise of blessing for those whose strength is in you and whose hearts are the highways to Zion. We thank you that we have the promise of blessing to those who trust in you. We pray your spirit would work that trust in all of us, replacing our natural responses to life in a fallen world, our natural responses to life in the valley of Baca. Replace our natural feelings and emotions, Lord, with trust and joy and worship, all of which were purchased by your Son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray this morning. Amen.